I know it's morning time here on a Sunday, but in our passage today, it's evening, it's certainly dark outside. Uh, There's a significant chill in the air. Everybody's got on multiple layers. There's a fire beside which we left Peter last week. You can see the glow uh, off of his profile as you can distinguish that it is his face as he stands nearby warming his outside. And we mentioned last week his ice cold heart on the inside could not yet be thawed, it soon would be. He had just denied Jesus. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? I am not. So it's nighttime, it's cold. You can see the glow off of the profile of Peter's face. We're standing in the atrium. It's a place probably smaller than this gymnasium. I think by the context clues we have, it's reasonable to discern that the crowd in this atrium surrounding which are the priest's dwelling quarters, their homes, probably something like a row house situation just below the Temple Mount, maybe half this many people. We know there's some officers, there's some Jews, there's some slaves, there's Annas, there's Jesus, there's Peter, maybe a handful of others. It's a quaint setting. Probably everybody can hear the conversations. Focus your attention on this moment in John 18, picking up in verse 19 as we hear the word of the Lord. John 18, 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Verse 24, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Join me at the throne of grace as we pray together. Father, my one simple phrase and loaded prayers that you would show everybody the saving glory of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Last week, as I mentioned, we left the scene with Peter trying to thaw out around the charcoal fire after his denial of Jesus. This week, the attention turns away from the fire and the lens focuses on the point of what's happening in this atrium outside the priest's homes. The focal point is once again upon Jesus who is standing with his hands bound before Annas, the priest emeritus. Four considerations. First, Verses 19 to 21, 
the interrogation that Jesus undergoes from Annas, and again, remember how John is setting this up, trial, denial, trial, denial. He's weaving these together. We're back at the trial focus in verses 19 to 21. This is the interrogation of Jesus by Annas. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus, and he had two questions, first about his disciples, and second about his teaching. I've inserted the high priest here is certainly Annas, not Caiaphas, because verse 24 tells us that he sent him to Caiaphas, so it can't be Caiaphas that he's talking with here. And as we've seen from the context earlier, this is is almost definitely Annas. Notice that there are two questions, right? The disciples and the teaching. Notice also that in reply, Jesus completely ignores the former and only speaks to the latter. He does not say anything about the disciples although one of them is right there by the charcoal fire. Another one of them, John, is certainly in the atrium because he was the one who ushered Peter in and used his own credentials of relationship in some capacity to the high priest to get Peter inside this atrium from the doorway where the slave girl was preventing him from entering prior. And so there's John and there's Peter. I believe Jesus' ignoring that former question about his disciples is another of John's pictures of something he wants us to see about Jesus, namely that Jesus is taking any and all punishment that could have fallen upon his people. To just get to the punchline of the whole sermon today, John is showing us in Jesus, something so parallel to the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. Jesus is being symbolized here, taking all the incrimination upon himself without allowing any consequences of any punishment to fall on anybody but himself. He doesn't point out his disciples. Can you imagine the thumping in Peter's heart as he had just denied that he was one of Jesus' disciples, and that same word gets injected into a question to Jesus. Tell me about your disciples. Peter standing right there. What if Jesus had said, you mean like him? He doesn't do that. He doesn't allow his people to undergo the punishment that he himself intends to undertake for their redemption. He's more than ready to bear the consequences of Peter's sin. D.A. Carson tries to help us envision this little moment here, and he says, the former question about his disciples may have been predicated on a fear that the following of Jesus was going to get to some critical mass that it could have led to an uprising. And the latter question suggests that the fundamental concern they have about his teaching was that, that their issue was mainly theological. But notice how they're posturing here when they're questioning Jesus. Carson goes on to say, although their questions about his teaching are clearly theological, what did you teach? It's presented 
as primarily political. They're taking him through the court systems in an unjust way, no doubt. Carson concluded it this way, the core of their concern was Jesus' claim as to who he was and consequently their fear that he would be leading people astray from them and from their teaching. This is what I want you to see before we go to the question about Jesus' teaching. He doesn't let any attention get directed toward his disciples. He keeps it upon himself. But when he does engage with the second question, tell us about your disciples and tell us about your teaching. This is what I want us to see. They weren't interested in the answer. They didn't want to know about his disciples or his teaching. They were just trying to checkmate Jesus into execution with a political smokescreen. We saw last week, chapter 13, they had already purposed to, quote, put him to death. The decision was already made. They just needed a legitimate reason to do it. Here's the absurd thing. As they're questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, they're actually breaking the law in the process of doing so. They're rushing Jesus through their trials, trying to masquerade as if they're the righteous ones, and Jesus is the guilty one. But Jesus, this is what I want you to see in verses 20 and 21, when he does speak to the second question, his teaching, is the only one who appeals to the biblical code for how to walk through such accusations and trials. Look at verse 20, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world, I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now that little phrase, I spoke nothing in secret, does not mean that Jesus never had private conversations with his disciples, but anything he said there would be substantiated by everything he said out in the open. This is not a prideful retort by Jesus. Tell us about your teaching. Why don't you go ask somebody else? It's not a prideful retort by Jesus. It was an appeal to a fair trial which exposed the shadiness of their hearts. They're masquerading as law-upholding leaders. Jesus is asking for a fair trial. The code from Deuteronomy and elsewhere is what Jesus is appealing to in making his response to these accusations or interrogations, I should say. At the end of the day, these spiritually proud people were attempting to use political maneuvers to put Jesus to death. Again, they didn't care about his teaching. You see, these people could no longer stand to have Jesus at the center of Israel's theological attention, and the attention was growing. So they needed a way to get rid of him, and here was the means to their end. A deceptively shady political process was a pathway to their sinister ends. I want to put it another way. These people wanted religion. They loved it. In fact, The clothes they were wearing was an expression of their religious pride. Can you picture Annas there in the priestly garb and garments and this top hat that would have been taller than his upper torso? They wanted religion. They just wanted a Christless religion. 
They wanted God's blessing on all their spiritual services and rituals without the centrality of God's Son. Are people not playing the same damnable game today? So many times we pose, don't we, as concerned Christians about this or that issue, our political stances on this or that. But we would be altogether fine if our political ideals or preferences were achieved and Jesus the Lord never took center stage in our own or anybody else's heart. If we're being honest, what most Christians want in many situations is the same kind of Christless Christianity, if you will, that these religious leaders were after. But I want you to see something in Jesus' response. He capitalizes on the pseudo-spirituality of these hell-bound priests to reveal something wonderful about his fitness to atone even for their sins if they would but trust him by faith. Here's how that works. You need to know a little bit about Old Testament sacrifices to get what I think John is aiming at in this portion. No Old Testament sacrifice, the millions and millions of them, not one of them ever came forward to the sacrificial selection committee and asked for a priest to survey them to see if they would be a fit sacrifice to be offered on behalf of the priest or the people. Now, I want you to use your imagination with me for just a moment. You're somewhere between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. It's entirely desert terrain. You're wandering around and you've been there for decades. Let's say three. All you've known, because you're in your mid-twenties at this point, is desert life. You've wandered around with Israel from campsite to campsite. You've picked it up. You've reset it. You've picked it up. You've reset it. And you've done it for decades. Now, I want you to imagine that it's nearing the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the one time every year when all your wilderness wanderings, the Passover's coming near, the priestly selection committee is doing all their preparations for the big day, and just adjacent to the camp is a sheep pen. Now, I want you to imagine that there's a committee chairman, and instead of going to the people, he goes to the pen, and he stands above all the sheep, and he asks them a question. Which of you can verify that you are worthy to be slain on behalf of an entire nation to stay God's righteous hand of judgment against us for our egregious sins against him? Now, you've got to use your imagination again, then you see, after a long, dramatic pause, one lamb stands and speaks, and he says something like this. Now, if Balaam's donkey can talk, then a lamb could talk, so you've got to use your imagination again. And one of the lambs stands up, and he says something like this. You can ask all my other sheeps. They're all aware that I'm the only spotless one in the bunch. In fact, you can go outside the pen and you can ask all the goats. You can go all the way back down to Egypt and ask them too. 
For they've all heard of my unmatched spotlessness as well. Now, I know it's silly to try to imagine some of those things, but if you've gone with me this far, one final step. Jesus is saying something like that. Did you see who he referred to? In terms of audience, audiences that could be queried about his teaching, it wasn't just Peter and John to whom he gives no reference. It's all the Jews, anybody who's ever come to the temple. You can go anywhere you want and you can ask even your own hell-bound friends because I taught openly and they can verify what I've been saying. In effect, what Jesus is saying is something no sacrifice had ever said and none could. He's saying that no one, no one, no one who knows anything about any of his teaching can point to one shred of evidence that he is anything other than perfect. This is the first sacrifice that comes forward and says, try to find one shred of blame in me, and if you can, I'll be unworthy. He's witnessing for himself that he knows And everyone who's paid any attention to him also knows he is the impeccable lamb. Jesus knew it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus knew what Peter would one day soon come to know. Can you imagine Peter writing this sentence? He did write it 20 or 30 years after this night of his betrayal knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus is saying, there's no flaw in me. So he doesn't draw attention to his disciples, I believe, to take all the consequences upon himself for his people is what John is indicating. And he speaks to the impeccability of his truthfulness, all of his teaching to show that he's a spotless lamb. Next thing I want you to see is in verse 22, it's the fulfillment of a prophecy concerning Jesus. Now this is subtle, but it's very important. Verse 22 reads, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Now I've just told you, I wanna draw your attention to the fulfillment of prophecy concerning Jesus. Your Bible may be set up like mine and have no Old Testament reference attached to that verse. Sometimes our Bibles have little superscripts, letters, or numbers that draw your attention to another place in the Bible. If yours has that, I wonder where it would take you. Verse 22. Let's ask a few questions to make sure we can see the scene. Who struck Jesus? Verse 22. Was it Annas? Nope. It was one of the officers. What kind of officers? This is either the Jewish temple police or this is one of the Roman soldiers who had just uh, arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But nevertheless, it is a trained officer. So that's who struck him. Why did he strike him? John doesn't give us the detail. There's two options. 
Either he was instructed to do so by the priest, or he calculated by himself that Jesus' reply was of such disrespect to the high priest that he deserved a blow in the face. Fundamentally, what's happening? Somebody's law just got broken. Therefore, the consequence was received. You see, they had the wrong metrics, the wrong standard of measure. And when their law was violated, the consequences had to be paid. One of the best heart surgery, soul surgery, conviction of sin books I've ever read is a little booklet that used to be back there on our bookstall. It's about 20 minutes worth of reading called How Do I Stop Losing It With My Kids? Now, if any of you are Many of you are better parents than me, but if any of you are without sin in this respect, I'd like to talk to you after. How, how do I stop losing it with my kids? That was the title. I've used this illustration before. It's, it's the perfect cover art, you know, the best cover art of any book. It's a balloon and a hand with a needle about to pop the balloon. That's the picture on the front of the little booklet. How do I stop losing it with my kids? The base answer is repent from the notion that you're God. The reason you lose it is because they broke your law, so they get your wrath. That's not the problem. The problem is breaking God's law. Being offended on his behalf. You see, these people had a code, didn't they? They had a standard. It may not have been written anywhere, but it was very apparent to them that Jesus crossed the line and deserved the wrath. The officer, ironically, hit God in the face because his sense of man's law was violated. What an accurate picture of your sin. We dishonor Jesus to pacify our personal preferences. But I said that this is, I wanted us to see a fulfillment of prophecy concerning Jesus. This isn't a random strike in the face. This didn't just so happen to Jesus. No, this is the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy from the 5th century B.C. Micah chapter 5, my, my, my. This is what I believe John is alluding to. Listen carefully. Now muster yourselves, Micah 5, 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's Micah 5, 1 and 2. Clearly, verse 2 is about the incarnation of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, who has existed from eternity, who will be the ruler over all Israel. Where is he standing in John 18? In front of the judges of Israel. But did you hear verse 1? With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Many have concluded, based on John's brief statement and his, what is apparently an allusion to Micah 5, 
that this officer who struck Jesus didn't do it with a balled up fist, but with a club. That he hit Jesus in the face with a rod. If he's an officer, he no doubt would have had something like a nightstick. Can you envision the moment? Who do you think you are to talk to the high priest like that? But Micah tells us that they smited the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is where John, I believe, is going with his irony again. The officer hit the true judge for disrespecting the pseudo-judge. And you and I do the same thing. Every single time we put man's law in front of God's law. Each time we dishonor Jesus to embrace our own sin, we do the same thing. John again is dropping a subtle connection to the Old Testament picture of the Messiah who would save God's people from their sin. Lamentations chapter 3 says that they, the, the Savior, the Messiah, would offer his cheek to those who would smite him. This is John's connection to the Old Testament portrait of the Messiah who would come to save God's people from their God-belittling sin. And once you see Jesus, the incarnate Savior, the long-promised Messiah fulfilling every single iota of Scripture on His way to being the perfect sacrifice, you can't unsee Him. He's the Savior that you so desperately need. He was willing to be clubbed in the face to fulfill Old Testament prophecy about the Savior in order to rescue sinners like you and me who've sinned against Him like a slap in the face today. The third thing I want you to see, verse 23, Jesus starts exposing their guilt. So the trial is unlawful already. He appeals to the Old Testament code that we should have external witnesses when life-threatening accusations are made against somebody. He doesn't speak for himself. According to the code, he would have witnesses who could speak for him. So they're breaking the law. Jesus is upholding it. He's revealing himself as the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb worthy to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And he's enduring the consequences that the Old Testament told us the Messiah would endure, namely getting clubbed in the face. They're judging him, but Micah 5.1 says he's the judge of them. The third thing I want you to see is the exposure of guilt. Just briefly, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? Just like Jesus didn't answer the first question about his disciples, nobody answers this question. Why, why do you strike me? The reason they didn't answer is because they knew they were already incriminated. They had no reason other than hatred of Jesus and an incensed, sinful anger and desire to get rid of him as quickly as possible. You see, he's asking you a similar question today. If I'm right and you're wrong, why are you against me? Why are you trying to get rid of me? He's exposing our guilt. Many have said it this way, 
The gospel has to tear you all the way down before it can build you up. The reason the gospel is good news is because there is very, very bad news. The bad news is that you are guilty, and not to condemn you, but as an act of incredible, incalculable agape love, Jesus means to expose your guilt. If I'm wrong, tell me how I'm wrong, but if I'm right, why are you treating me like this? You see, at the end of the day, the judge of all the earth will be validated as right. No sin will ever go unpunished, unexposed. He's not wrong. There is no response to a question like this that could satisfy their sinister, evil intentions. They're exposed so they don't answer. And then finally, what we get in verse 24 is redemption accomplished. It's not fully accomplished in verse 24, but it is so set in motion. Verse 24 reads, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. What an important little sentence in our Bible. At this point, Jesus looks eerily similar to an Old Testament sacrificial lamb being brought before the high priest on the Passover as a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He's perfect. You can ask anybody about his teaching. He's bound like an Old Testament lamb would be on the Day of Atonement, and he's on his way to be put to death. Yes, that's John's point. But he's standing in front of the priest. A perfect sacrifice in front of the high priest at the Passover. It's what John the Baptist had declared about Jesus from the earliest days of his public ministry. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, here he is. While Annas and Caiaphas and all the temple guards feel so in control, Jesus has meticulously carried out the Father's eternal plan of redemption. Have you carefully examine the teaching of Jesus. I do mean it rhetorically in the sense of, I'm not asking anybody to answer aloud, but I don't mean it rhetorically in the sense that I don't mean for you to answer the question. Have you carefully examined the teaching of Jesus? Are you following him as your rabbi? Have you seen that all of his words, as the disciples said, are true? They're the words of life. You see, Jesus appealed to the publicness of his teaching under this trial. It's as public today as it was in his day. You have in your laps or on your gadget a copy of God's Word. So if you've never carefully examined the teaching of Jesus, I commend to you Jesus' question. Go look for yourself. Go ask anybody. If you've never read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I joyfully challenge you to read through the gospel. Start with the gospel of John. Read through it thoughtfully and prayerfully. Ask God, is this true? The, the Bible's self-attesting. It, it confirms its own truthfulness as you carefully read it. Are you like Annas and Caiaphas and these officers sitting in judgment over Jesus, trying to determine is he, is he good enough to be around you? Have you been trying to get rid of Jesus like these people in John 18? 
Are you doing whatever it takes to no longer have to deal with Jesus? Just get him away so you can go on living your life. Maybe keep him on the periphery so, of course, if you need a lucky charm, you can appeal to him, but otherwise he's of no use to you. You see, he loves you too much to let you keep running from him. And so one of my prayers before this morning is that he would give you no rest until you've rested by faith in him. I want to remind you that Peter was hearing all of this. He was seeing his Savior get hit in the face with a rod. I have good news for you today. The two things we see about Jesus in this passage is he's the judge, Micah 5.1. They will strike with a rod of iron the judge of Israel in the face. They're trying to judge him. But one day really soon... Can you imagine this? Try to get you to use your imagination about the lamb. Can you imagine the man who hit Jesus in the face when he met his maker, when his jaw dropped and he realized the judge of all the earth before whom he stood is the very one he smited with a club in the atrium of the high priest's courtyard? The two things we see about Jesus is he's the judge. Paul said to a bunch of pagans in Athens, God has fixed a day in which he will judge all men having given proof, furnished proof. He has already showed that it is an irrevocable reality. God will not let this rule be broken. Acts 17, he will judge the whole world through one man. What's the proof he gave us? He raised him from the dead. So are you trying to get rid of Jesus? Are you sitting in judgment over the judge? How ironic. Are you trying to determine if he's good enough to stay around you? Have you been trying to get rid of him? Are you trying to no longer deal with him? I said a moment ago, he loves you too much to let you keep running, and Peter is soon to be proof positive of that. I pray he'll give you no rest until you have rested by faith in him. But not only is he the judge, he's the priest. This passage shows us them judging him, and him getting jockeyed around to priests. Now can you imagine Annas or Caiaphas on the day they met their maker? And when they stood before this same Jesus of Nazareth in all his regal majesty and risen glory, and they were judged by him, the three worst words, it's too late. He's the priest they needed. And they presumed that they were the priest who needed to get rid of him. You will be judged by Jesus. But the good news, the good news of the gospel, the greatest part of the good news of the gospel is that the judge is also the priest. When God's people who have come to him through faith in his risen son believing that Jesus died for our sins against him to atone for the crimes we committed that we could not pay for. When we come to him, the amazing reality is that he doesn't punitively judge us. He gets up off the bench. He takes off the judge's robe. He goes to sit in our place as the guilty criminal, and he takes the punishment in our stead. He is our priest and the sacrifice. 
Here's the good news. There is a Savior. Peter can listen to him. No matter what you've done, if you've denied him right in his presence, he can forgive your worst sins. He can make you clean before God. He can bring you close to God without any fear of rejection. He can save you. If you will believe upon Jesus, you will live with him forever. If you will not, it's not because he's not done enough for you. This is where I close. The Bible has, in one of its greatest of all great lines, a truth about Jesus that John, I believe, wants us to see. The line I'm thinking of is in the book of Romans where it calls God both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He upholds the standard of all of his righteousness and his integrity as God, allowing you to come into his family though you are no doubt a guilty sinner. He doesn't compromise his justice. He doesn't stop being God to become my friend. How can he do that? How does it not diminish his character? How does it not muddy his glory? How does it not soil his holiness to let me become his friend? How can he be just to accept a sinner like me? The answer is, he's also the justifier. Here's your lamb. Here's your validated publicly. Anybody in the world can examine anything about his teaching. It's all true. Any pagan can try to poke holes in it. As Nietzsche said, he would live to see the Bible become a relic. Nietzsche's gone. Here we are today reading the Bible. It's not a relic. It'll never be a relic. For 10 million eternities, we'll continue to see that the glory of Jesus is as true as true can be through and through. He's the spotless lamb. You can ask anybody. You can go anywhere. You can go to any corner of the universe and try to poke a hole in Jesus' teaching, you're not going to be able to do it. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's just, but he's also the justifier. The judge became the sacrifice. That's what John's showing us. You hit the judge in the face? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And you're going to stand before him one day. The great news of the gospel is that judge is going to look at his father and say, I took the punishment for all their crimes. If you will believe upon Jesus, John's main message is, you will live with him forever. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that Jesus the Lord would become the centerpiece of our affections, our trust, our faith. And as we heard this morning in our discipleship session, that our life would prove that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Draw us to Christ. I pray right now that you would draw young and old, boy and girl, man and woman, that you would draw 
people to Jesus. And that you would cause people to believe upon him and to live. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.